We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamella. My guest today may have taken the most unique path to the Pro Football Hall of Fame of all of its enshrinees. He was born in Norway and was attending Montana State on a ski jumping scholarship when he was discovered by chance kicking some balls around after a workout. The rest, as they say, is history. His skill helped lead the Chiefs to their first Super Bowl win over Minnesota, and he became the first pure kicker to put on a gold jacket. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Jan Stenerud. Jan, welcome. Thank you very much, Rich. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, Jan, well, <laughs> as I mentioned uh, in, the, uh, in the intro, yours is about as unique a story as there is <laughs> in, in uh, you know, kind of American team sports. Um, and so, so let's, you know, kind of get right into it. You're, you're born in Fetsund, Norway. Um, well, you got that right. It's a small town about 20 miles east of Oslo, out in the country, although now the population is almost, it's almost a suburb to Oslo, the capital, the biggest city. In those days, a pretty much farm country and hilly, looked like Minnesota and, and Wisconsin, a lot of hills, not, not mountains there, but a lot of you know, ski jumping hills, cross country skiing, and uh, it's a nice part of the country to live. Uh, southeastern part of the country. Sure, um, and you know, and it, it's funny, and and we'll talk about Norway in a second. But the most recent interview uh, I've done for this show is Dan Deerdorf, uh, Hall of Fame offensive lineman for the Cardinals, and Dan grew up yeah. a mile and a half from the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. I looked it up on, uh, I Googled it today. Fetz in Norway is just under 4,000 miles away from Canton, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that I know that Dan was born in Canton. I think, is Alan Page born in Canton too? Alan Page uh, is also, yep. No, so, so we have, you know, we get together during the Hall of Fame week and, and uh, Dan welcomes all of us to his hometown and, and he tells about when he was there in 1963. As a very as a kid, and well, that was the you know the original the inaugural class of the Hall of Fame in 1963, and I got to know Dan pretty well over the years, and 
just a marvelous man. And, uh, and he does a good job too, I tell you, when he welcomes people to his hometown. And it's just kind of funny, like literally in the span of a couple of days, I talked to a guy who grew up a mile from there and about 3,900 miles from there. <laughs> I didn't know it was that far, but that'd be about right. I'm sure it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so so you grew up in Fetson and you're 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 an athlete. You play soccer, you run track and field. You obviously are a speed jumper. Your grandfather was an alternate on the 1928 Norwegian Olympic ski jumping team. Believe it. Believe it or not, it's not a grandfather. It was my uncle. It's oh, your uncle. <laughs> my, my dad, I'm born in 1942. My dad was born in 1900. He was 42 year old, two years old and I was born. And his younger brother was born in 1902, I think. And he was an alternate for the 28th Olympics. And, and he was very good, of course. But everybody, when I grew up, my, my dad was a good ski jumper. And I grew up, we had ski jumps all over the place. We even had one right outside the kitchen window, a real small. So my brother and I, he was two years younger than I, I am, um, turned the light on, the porch light, and wait till our dad was in the window so we could jump and he could watch his land. We just jumped. <clears throat> we were probably airborne for about, uh, oh, 12, 14 feet. I mean, we were probably going about four feet in the air. This little hill there. And then we went up again, did it again. And then we grew into bigger hills. And in my hometown of uh, oh, a couple of thousand people, at, at one time we had 20 ski jumps. Now they have none, by the way. And two of them had artificial light, or, or not artificial, we had lights at night. But after supper, we just went down to the jumping hill. In this hill, we jumped about oh, 30, 35 meters, 100 and, 110, 15 feet. That's the, that's the distance you're in the air from the hmm. time you leave the takeoff and then you land on the ground on the, in the steep landing hill. So you measure the distance you're in the air. And we started my first competition. I was uh, eight years old. It was a seven and eight-year-old class, and then it was a nine and ten-year-old class. So I bet there were 100, 100 kids on, on the farm, not too far away, that we can jump. You know, it was kind of a, just a hill. There was no scaffolding. We just built. You're just coming down a hill, and you build a takeoff, and then you landed, and... And I remember finished second, and I can still remember the name of the guy that beat me. And from then on, we skied in the wintertime, we skied jump probably in meets six, seven times every year from the time I was eight till I was 19. The last year I was home. And of course, then you weed out people over as you get older. Some of the ones that aren't, they like it anymore, don't do very well, they don't keep going. So uh, I did okay. So in my junior class, uh, I was 19. I had the second longest jump in the junior national championship. I think I finished barely in the top 10. My second jump wasn't very good, but it was good enough. And I also had some other high places too. And also I was picked to be a, a forerunner at maybe the most, most famous ski jump in the world, Holman Kolen ski jump in Oslo, Norway. Hmm. Uh, 80,000 people that day. And, uh, and I was one of the forerunners and the, uh, that was a national holiday, kind of, for the Holman Club. It's almost the second weekend of March. And uh, uh, there was a, Norwe- a couple of Norwegian kids already on ski scholarships at Montana State. And one uh, tour, T-O-R, tour Fogeros, he and the ski coach, Bob Beck, wrote me a letter and offered me a full-ride ski scholarship to Montana State. I recognized Tor's name. was easy because he had won the junior national championship in Norway in Nordic combined 
That means you get points for jumping and you get points for cross-country 15-kilometer ski race. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then his, later, by the way, his brother won it two years in a row as a junior. And then his brother went on a couple of years after that to actually get a silver medal in the 64 Olympics. And he was favored to win it, actually. So when Torb signed that letter with the ski coach, I knew immediately who he was. So we, I talked to my parents about it. My father was all for it. It was a free education <laughs> in a land of opportunity. My mother was a little bit reserved or worried about it a little bit. Maybe I wouldn't make it back again to home. And the decision was kind of at least go for a year. You know, and, I, and I liked it and kept going. And I'm halfway through school. And... And uh, they enjoy the college life. I mean, that's unique in America. In the, you know, the sports are always through the high schools and the colleges. In the sports in Norway, if you had no, there was all club sports. The only athletic thing we had was every second day in school, we had a gym class. We played volleyball maybe or did some gymnastics or whatever. And, uh, you know, you live, in a, you live in a dormitory, everybody's the same age, and you go to the football games, you go to the basketball games, you meet people. So it was just, I just enjoyed it. And I heard so much about America, Rich, because an uncle and aunt that immigrated from Norway to Buffalo, New York in 1921. That's a while ago. Wow. And they actually, uh, how they ended up in Buffalo, I'm not sure. A lot of Norwegians, they, they, and most of the immigration took place from Norway to the United States between 1825 and 1925, about that, that, that uh, century. Yeah. And a lot of them go to Minneapolis, Minnesota, as you well know, North Dakota, South Dakota. Sure. Ah, and they called the climates, and they had this homesteading act. You have to get, in, uh, you know, what's the 640 acres for a section, I think it is. And if you worked hard and... Uh, you made it. You could live a nice life, and you were kind of landlocked in 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 Norway. It was a small country on the west coast. There were, you know, small farms, and and I heard so much about America that my uncle and aunt would come back several times when I was growing up, and they talked about New York, the the skyscrapers in New York, and the big cars, and all the, the big highways, and all the all the fancy life, and I was just fascinated by the United States. So for me, that was a very tempting offer. When I got that offer from Montana State to come there and be on the I, ski jumping was a main sport. I had to do two things. So a cross country is some other one I had to do, which I didn't really enjoy, enjoy because you run and you're hurt after five minutes and you got about an hour to go to finish the race. But <laughs> <laughs> that's what you had to do. And you competed for the team. So I did okay in that. But jumping was my what I well, that was my best sport. Yeah. And and, you know, obviously this is this is, you know, in the 60s. This is long before we've got all the, you know, ESPNs and international coverage of football. My guess is when you show up at Montana, you don't really know much about American football. Are you kind of seeing it for the first time when you're an undergrad as a skier? Yep. Yep. Okay. I didn't know anything about it. As a matter of fact, I'd seen one game before when I stopped in Buffalo on the way to Montana. I flew in. I flew from Norway to be landing in Reykjavik Island. Stopped in Greenland to fuel up and land in Gander, Newfoundland, Newfoundland. Sure. And then you know, on to New York and the airport. I don't think you remember the name of the airport at that time. It was called Idlewild Airport. Oh, JFK. Kennedy Airport a couple of years later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. And yeah. So when I was in Buffalo, my uncle and aunt, uh, somehow they have ended up working for the Butler family 
that owned the Buffalo Evening News. Hmm. And my, my aunt was kind of a cook. And my, my, my uncle did everything. But the sports writer for the Buffalo Evening News was a guy called Larry Felser. Mm-hmm. He was like almost like the Sid Hartman in Minneapolis. You see. Yeah, so, legend. He was a sports editor, and he took me to my first game because my my sister, sister, but actually was in Buffalo at the time too, because she was helping my aunt uh, because the, her husband, our uncle, had just died all of a sudden. I didn't have any kids. So Larry took me to the first game, and that particular game in 1962, on the way for me from Norway to Montana State, the Dallas Texans played the Buffalo Bills in the old stadium in Kansas City. I mean, in the Buffalo, and uh, I think Joe Cap was the quarterback. I remember Cookie Gilchrist was on that team, and Albert Goldenwheel Dubinian, I think his name was. <laughs> and I didn't even remember any names on the Dallas Texans team. Which, of course, the next year became the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. Uh, because Lamar Hunt, who owned the team and also founded, was the main founder, actually, of the, the American Football League. He uh, started in Texas, but they had to compete against the Dallas Cowboys, the NFL, which wouldn't let Lamar buy a team for a long time. They tried to buy one. As soon as the Dallas Texans started to play in Dallas, the NFL expanded and put the Dallas Cowboys in 1961 as the National Football League team. And they, of course, because of the background of the National Football League and they played in the same stadium, Lamar couldn't compete with that. And he wanted to move. And I think his first choice was New Orleans, but ended up coming to Kansas City. Hmm. So that was my first football game. And then come to Montana State, of course, I, I didn't know a thing about it. Everybody went to the game. There was only about eight, 9,000 people at the Bobcat Stadium, I remember. But most of the students, a lot of the students went. And it was kind of a fun afternoon. The cheerleaders I'd never seen before, they come running out before the team and they did cartwheels and people were screaming and yelling and, <laughs> and the bands were playing and it was just fun to watch. But but the game, I wasn't, uh, you know, they played for four or five seconds then everything stopped. And I stood around for almost 30 seconds and then it looked like they played for five seconds again. And so it didn't really interest me that much. I enjoyed basketball more. It was easier to understand. Uh, but I did go to the game for two or three years before I got involved. And that uh, it, it was fun to watch. It was kind of a happening on Saturday afternoon. Yeah. And so, and so, so you're, you know, you're getting acclimated to, you know, kind of college yeah. life in America. You're going to a few games. And in the meantime, like you said, you're, you're skiing cross country and you're a ski jumper. You would in the fall, train for skiing by running the stadium steps at the football stadium and yeah and- i did that <clears throat> yeah you're right yeah I give you. i've heard so many versions right so sometimes i wonder if my memory is correct <laughs> i think it is because <laughs> you know there's several people that say oh i'm the one that told the coach or i'm the one that did this and did that and and there's a lot of people that kind of got involved over the years but what happened was i ran the stadium steps every uh, well, five days a week i think in the fall as a freshman as a sophomore and a junior, this junior, this is my junior year. That was part of the workout. Could get legs in good shape and also getting ready for the ski season and particularly for cross country because we ran a lot of distance running too. But one day, my junior year, um, the the kicker on the team who also played halfback or defensive back, uh, name was Dale Jackson. He was down there kicking footballs and I hadn't kicked any kind of a soccer ball uh, for three years. And I, of course, I played soccer my whole 
growing up to play on team every year since I was eight years old as well mm-hmm. and played on the senior team in my hometown when I was uh, a junior actually. So I had me kick the ball. I thought, and I'd met Dale. So I said, Dale, can I kick? Can I try to kick? I used to play soccer. I haven't kicked the ball in years. So I kicked with a toe like he did, but, you know, rounded tennis shoes. And I and did okay. I kicked the ball further than he did, I remember. Then I asked him, can you kick with the side of your foot like you take a corner kick in soccer? I doubt if he knew what a corner kick in soccer was. People didn't know much about that then. But at, at luck will have it, I guess. He said, yes, you can. This was 1964. He said there's a kicker for the Buffalo Bills who kicks with the side of his foot. His name is Gogolak. I never had watched the pros. So I kicked a few with the side of my foot. I didn't even know what steps to take. I'd never told Peter Gogolak or or his brother Charlie Gogolak or Uprimian to years later, maybe after two or three years in professional football because they were never on television. There was no ESPN, of course. There was no... NFL Network. So I kind of come up with the steps and I did this several times. The basketball coach, his name was Roger Kraft, big six, eight, six, nine guy. He had seen me from the, from my office window and walked across the field a few times. And he even held down to hold the ball for me. Is he going to kick this one? If it take this a couple of steps? And yeah, I think so. And he ran over to the football coach. His name is Jim Sweeney, who later coached at Fresno State and won over 200 games and actually should be in the, in the college uh, Hall of Fame as a coach. Yeah. Uh, his problem was he went to Washington State after Montana State. And at, in the three and seven season, he was a coach of the year in the Big Eight because they hadn't won for so many years. And he's losing record there, but he, but he was a fabulous coach. But Roger Kraft went over to Jim Sweeney, the football coach, and says, hey, Coach, there's a skier out there. You can really kick the football. The football coach didn't pay much attention to it. He didn't really trust the basketball coach, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, a couple of weeks later, uh, I was from the stadium steps, the last home game in Montana State against, I, that played, I'm not even sure. Last home game in 64, uh, the, the football team was working out in the stadium instead of the practice field uh, next to it. And I was from the steps, didn't pay any attention to them. And then I heard it. The voice from the football coach yelling, hey, skier, hey, skier, get down here. Here you can kick. Hey, and that ski- was the first time I kicked, kicked the football. And, of course, it was still breaking practice. And this, this big, overweight football players, what I thought they were, <laughs> stood around. Here's a skinny, skinny skier going to kick the football. And I never put the ball in the tee before. And I wanted to kick off, you know, for the 40-yard line. And, of course, the altitude in Bozeman is not quite as high as Denver. But the ball probably goes five, six yards further than that's the sea level. And the slight breeze behind me, and I topped the first attempt. I never put a ball in the tee. I didn't even know how much I should lean it back. It went like a squib kick, and the kids kind of laughed a little bit, the football players. And So anyway, coach said, can you do that again? Try again. So I did it again and put the ball straight up on the tee. And he went, the ball kickoff went through the goalpost and into the seats. Hmm. And he got a little bit quiet. Do it again, do it again. So I kicked the ball into the from the other 40-yard line, they were probably 75 yards almost to the seats, and I kicked him into the seat three or four times in a row, and he, he puts his hands on my shoulder, and he says, uh, young man, what are you doing tomorrow? And I knew he was talking about the game the next day, and I also knew that I was eligible, but he wanted me to suit up for the last home game of the year, 1964, my junior year, so I get used to the crowd, and I informed them that I had ski jumped in front of 80,000 people before, so I don't think the 8,000 would bother me. 
<laughs> but he's tried to suit it up and, and, and just participate in pregame warm-up. Then they asked me to go out for spring practice for for the football team and then made the team, you know, compete against somebody else. And, and he put me, gave me my senior, uh, senior year. They changed my scholarship from skiing to football because I had more of those, but I did both. I competed in skiing in the fall and then, I mean, in the football in the fall and then the ski team that winter. And that's how we, how we got started. That's amazing. And so a couple, a couple of things from those Montana State years. So first of all, your fir- so your first year kicking, you know, on the varsity is 65. You kick a 59 yarder versus the arch rival Montana as you guys beat Montana. Right. And uh, yeah, you sure you sure done your homework. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. And now it was the uh, first three points of the game. And now, years later, I went up to Montana. Of course, I go up there all the time. But somebody said, oh, yeah, I was there when you kicked that game winner from 59 yards against the Grizzlies. And well, I mean, it wasn't a game winner. It was the first score of the game. We won 24 to 7. But uh, it turned out it was 59 yards. And I'll tell you how, the, how slow the news spread in those days. Six days later, on the Friday, the following Friday, that's how long it took anybody to find out that it was a record. It said in the headlines in, in the Bozeman, uh, uh, let's see, Bozeman Daily Chronicle. It said, Bobcat Kicker set national record. And it said that a 59-yarder broke the college record by three yards and the college record by five. And that's how we found that out, that that was a record. Six and days course, later. I had changed. Yeah, so, that, yep, then, six days later. And then two weeks after that, uh, the athletic director calls me into his office and, you know, I had a telegram lying on my desk for a couple of days. It was a telegram, my name, Tierra, Montana State Athletic Department. And it says, dear J.A.N., dear Jan, congratulations, you've been drafted in the third round of the AFL Register Draft. Signed, Jack Stedman, General Manager, Kansas City Chiefs. Hmm. So, the coach, or the, the yeah, fact they told me to go to Jim Sweeney, the football coach, to show him this. And he said, wow, is, it, is that right? So he says, yeah, coach, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hopefully make make a football team again this fall. And then I'm going to, uh, uh, then I'm going to ski. And then I'm going to, let me see how they know. I told him that I was just going to uh, ski this winter. And I'd be it. I, I'm going to be on a ski team. And then they're going to go home. And they said, no, you're not. And I said, what do you mean? No, you're going to be on the football team one more season because you're going to have a chance to be drafted also by the other league, the NFL. It was just starting out, you know, competing against the AFL, NFL. Sure. And I didn't know anything about this. And they explained it. And I was sure enough, since I was a senior, but I changed sports to another sport that, according to the NCAA rules in those days, I could go to college one more season in a different sport and a different scholarship. And the way it worked out, I had a good year, and there was about 25 of us, I think, that had been drafted as AFL future draft choices the year before. Either I'd been hurt or something else, or like in my case, a different sport or whatever. So now the NFL has a special draft, and the Atlanta Falcons is in the second, going to be in the second year. They played one year of football. And they picked first, and they decided to pick me in this particular draft. So now I have a choice. Do I go to maybe the best team in the AFL, 
which is the Kansas City Chiefs, or one of the new team or the, the worst team in the NFL. So Sweeney helped me kind of figure all this out, and I talked to both teams. And uh, when I met Hank Stram and Lamar Hunt and, and Bobby Bethard and, uh, and Tommy O'Boyle, who was the GM, which I now called the head, head talent scout, and also Jack Stepman, the president, I wanted to be, I wanted to come to Kansas City. I wanted to be with those people. Yeah. So I ended up signing uh, three in December of 66. That was three to four weeks before Super Bowl one. And uh, of course, the the Packers beat the Chiefs 35-10. And I thought for a second, oh, oh maybe I made a mistake. <laughs> I into the wrong league. And, but it turned out, you know, it turned out right. So, but that, that's how, how this whole thing started. Yeah. And, and it's amazing. I mean, you talk about foresight and, and maybe it was planned, maybe it wasn't, but to join a team where the owner hunt, the GM, Bobby Bethard and the coach Hank Stram are all destined for the hall of fame. That's pretty good fortune. Yeah. Yeah. And also I remember negotiating. First of all, I'd gone that the chiefs had, uh, had a good team. I'd seen if you paid in something called the Camellia bowl, that was a, in the western part of the country, that was the <clears throat> championship of football, which now was Division Two for a while, and then it became what is sub championship division. I can't remember what people call that thing. It's a right, right step behind the bigger school, but schools like North Dakota State, of course, and San Diego State was in that division in those days. So we played San Diego State in Sacramento, something called the Camellia Bowl, and on Don Horn, the lady was drafted number one by the by the uh, Green Bay Packers, the uh, same year I was drafted, and also Haven Moses was a fine receiver. But sure. on that staff, the head coach was Don Coriel. One of the assistants for San Diego State was Joe Gibbs. And other assistants was uh, Hannafin, Jim Hannafin. And the third assistant was John Madden. Mm-hmm. That was the San Diego State coaching staff in 1966. And uh, they beat us in Sacramento in a rainy day, I remember. But Bobby Bethard flies me to to uh, make sure he flies with me to the Orange Bowl because the Chiefs are going to play their last regular season game against Miami, which was an expansion team that year. And since I've been drafted the year before it's the future, I made up my mind I am not going to kick because they think I'm pretty good. There was right. no contest. Hank got me out on the field in pregame <laughs> anyway. And I guess he liked what he saw. So they, uh, I flew back with the team to Kansas City. And he wanted to uh, sign me. I said, no, I can't do that. I got to go to I got to go to Atlanta first. And he says, come on, come on outside. In addition to what money they, money they offered me, they had a brand new uh, Riviera, Buick Riviera with a sunroof and a whole bit. And he said, take this and drive it. Take this. This is part of the, your bonus. So whatever. But I got back to Bozeman, Montana a couple of weeks later or a week later. Flew to Atlanta, listened to them, got back to Bozeman, and then Bobby Bethard came up again and talked to him, and he called uh, Hank Stram, and he called Lamar, and we agreed on something. And, of course, the numbers then compared to that, I don't know why they called so many people to, to sign me, but that's what happened. And I signed with the Chiefs three weeks before Super Bowl, Super Bowl one. That's funny. And, and I guess you weren't eligible to kick in the Super Bowl. You couldn't just join the team. No, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a rookie until the next year. Right, right. I signed in the, uh, because there was, there was two different leagues, and this, but that's the way the rules were. You could be drafted. No, my rookie year was the next year in training camp in yeah. Kansas City, and back, actually the first 
And that year, we started to play NFL teams in the preseason. We had six preseason games. I think we had three of them against the NFL. And the first game, well, the first game was on the road. We played the Houston Oilers. And I remember Ernie Ladd blocked. I know I had a kick blocked in college. He blocked my kick. We kicked from 70 yards deep. Now they go eight yards deep on field goals. And some of the fields weren't very good either. But, but, then the, but the first home game, exhibition game was against the Chicago Bears. And of course, this was important to the people, the Chiefs that had been beaten so if I attend by the, um, the Packers in Super Bowl one. So we took that game very seriously and we scored 66 points that night in Kansas City. George Hallis was still the coach. And like Dick Butkus was heard saying, you know, we better, they're going to kill that horse because they have a horse called Warpaint that they rode, this, you know, a lap around the stadium after each touchdown, touchdown field goal. So we scored 66 points. So we had took a revenge kind of <laughs> over the NFL on that particular <laughs> game. And, and I made the team and, and uh, you know, and then the, the first, of course, the Super Bowl two, the the Packers win again. They beat the, the uh, Oakland Raiders pretty convincingly, 33 to 14. And Super Bowl three was a big game. That's when the Jets beat Baltimore after being underdogs by 18 points. And of course, the last AFL NFL two Super Bowl game was Super Bowl four, before the merger, last game before the merger between the Vikings and us. And we were underdogs still by 13, 14 points. That we ended up beating them 23-7, and Lamar Hunt always talked that the the AFL NFL four Super Bowls was two and two. So. Yeah, oh, that was a, that was a huge game because obviously, yeah, the the significance of the Jets beating the Colts has you know been talked about a million times, but the fact that you guys were able to come back the next year in, like you said, the final AFL yeah. NFL matchup uh, and and draw even. Uh, by beating the Vikings, the favored Vikings was a huge deal for the you know legitimacy. Yep. They, they, had, the they had a great team. They had a great team. They won 12 in a row. That was really a good team. But we were good. I mean, you know, our defense, my goodness, we played the Jets. We had to go to on the Jets on the road in the first playoff game. They're defending Super Bowl champs. We won 13 to 6. I mean, it, and it was a miserable field, and it was cold and windy, and the Mets, the Miracle Mets, had won the uh, had won the World Series that year, and people that picked that kind of grass, there was hardly any grass left on the field. That just was dirt and halfway frozen sand and dirt. And but we went 17-7 over the defending Super Bowl champ. Then we had to go to Oakland, and they only got seven points on us. We win that game 17 to seven, and we go to the to the Super Bowl, and the Vikings only get seven. So in three games, the defense. Holds them to a total of 20 points combined in those three games. Yeah, and also that season, that season, Lenny missed six games and they won a lot of games, but we kicked quite a few field goals in that season. We did do that, but that, it was a defense that kept us in the game. We uh, we had a lot of low-scoring games, and we won all the games that Lenny was out. Yeah. Uh, quarterback second string was a guy called Jackie Lee. He got hurt right away. Number third string quarterback Mike Livingston comes in, and we've been all the six games that he played. And then mm-hmm. Benny comes back, and we go all the way. So uh, the defense was, and it was, you know, it's interesting. Not interesting. Sad to see that Joe Cap died the other day. Yep. And he had that, uh, you know, that the, the 40 MVPs, so the 40 for 60, 40 men for 60 minutes, was 40 people on squad in those days. And 
and that, that was his term that he used. But in those days, it wasn't Mahomes against Burrow or whatever, Mahomes against uh, so-and-so. It was the Vikings against the Chiefs. You know, it's become such a quarterback game, although I have to admit that this kid they have in Kansas City, Mahomes, is, might be the most exciting football player I've ever seen. But it was a, it was a, it was it hadn't become... When I started, I think it seemed in a lot of ways the running backs were almost as or were as important as the running back and as big as stars in many ways. I mean, that's the quarterback, the running backs were. Yeah. So the the of course the all the off all the rule changes over the years have been to in, increase the success of the passing game, which I had to admit, pro football is a tremendously exciting game. There's no question about that. The game is phenomenal. Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, and a couple of things jump out in those early years in Kansas City. First of all, you mentioned the defense and how dominant they were in that run to your Super Bowl win over Minnesota. You look at that defense, you had six Hall of Famers on it. Curly Culp and Buck Buchanan <clears throat> in front, Willie Lanier and Bobby Bell, uh, Johnny Robinson and Emmett Thomas. And oh, by the way, the rest of the guys are really good, too. Jim Lynch and guys like Jim Marsalis. Um, You're was- absolutely right. You know, you know the whole lot. Jim Kearney, I would say, he was a heck of a player. We had Jerry Mays, was a tremendous defensive end. He was our team captain. Sure. And Aaron Brown was the defensive end that year. And our offensive line was the biggest in football. We had some, we had some really terrific players. I mean, we did, but but there are other teams that had great players too. You look at the Raiders; they had a lot of Hall of Famers you know, over the years too. And no, but there were we had. We had a good, we had a lot of good players. There's no question about that. It took a while to get the guys into the Hall of Fame later, but uh, uh, you know Willie, no Bobby Bell was our first Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. Bobby Bell was our outside linebacker, and and our center, by the way, EJ Hollib in Super Bowl four, he was a starting outside linebacker in Super Bowl one, and I believe that's the only thing time that's happened that a, the guy that played offense in one Super or defense in one Super Bowl. Few years later, starts as an outside linebacker and starts as a center. Four years later, EJ Holland was a team captain, a great player, number fifty-five from Texas Tech, and they called him the Holler guy. He would scream and yell, "But never leave me alone." I tried to avoid it because in those days the rookies had to sing a song, standing on the chair and sing a song on every meal. I tried to avoid him, but I never could. And I think he made me sing my school song for six weeks or whatever, something like that. And I remember telling Hank, "He says." Uh, I don't really like this. And they said, well, he, he really likes you. That's why he's doing that to you. And I said, well, that's a funny way of showing it. But, but he, he, he was quite a guy. He, he was just terrific. He was just one of a kind. Yeah. You know, he was a wonderful man and a, great, and a great player. I remember Bob Lilly said one time that he said when he was in college, the best football player he'd ever seen was E.J. Hollum from Texas Tech. Mm. Interesting. Well, and it must have been wild for you because – you're you're coming in right when you're starting to have kickers who are specialists because until then you'd have a linebacker who could also kick or an offensive guard who could also yeah. kick and all of a sudden well you know, and and oh by the way well, what kicking specialists there were were not typically you know european guys who kicked sideways outside of you and the gogolacks um so what what was that like that dynamic you're in the locker room and they're like well, this norwegian guy. <laughs> what happened was, of course, the squad, it was 35, it was 38. And a couple of years before I got in, they expanded it to 40 people. 
So now you may have more room for a guy who couldn't do anything but kick. Now, when I got there uh, in training camp, we had a couple of soccer-style kickers that competed against me. But I, I could tell right away that I had, I could kick the ball better than they did. So it's a matter of, if I can compete now, I'm gonna, it's going to work out. But here's also what happened, though. I, uh, the AFL, the first field goal that I attempted in the regular season game is a 54-yarder. Remember, the strings are straight against me. But I hit it anyway and make it. And then I end up kicking the most field goals in the AFL, AFL. Of course, I think I had six kicks blocked. And they kicked, you know, if you missed the kick from 57 yards into a strong win, uh, we had no chance of making it anyway. It didn't really matter because the ball was put on the 20-yard line, like you punted into the end zone. Well, after my rookie year, um, I had uh, my the papers, the student pay, I was a student athlete, but I signed an extra paper at the embassy in Norway, and the extra paper that I signed, which the, the people that had me signed didn't even know, and I didn't know, it qualified me for the U.S. Army, and I wasn't even a citizen yet. So I joined the unit up in Montana, transferred to Kansas City, and right after my rookie year, I had to go to Fort Polk, Louisiana, for five and a half months of basic training. I didn't see a newspaper, didn't see anything, no telephones, of course, television. I get to the airport in Shreveport, Louisiana, getting out of basic training, coming back to Kansas City right before camp. The first thing I see when I see my first paper in five and a half months is Hank Stram in England. He had been in other places too, and he was recruiting professional soccer players and rugby players to come to camp and compete against me. Hmm. One of them turned. One guy was a basketball player called Jim Haslam. He was six ten or six eleven. Bobby Howfield had played professional soccer for six years. He was actually pretty good. Then he was the last cut, and then Denver picked him up, and he kicked there for a few years, and they were traded to Jet for Jim Turner. And yeah. also in training camp early year was Horst Muleman who kicked in for Cincinnati for many years, but I beat him out, and he got to Cincinnati, and then I also went to South America for a year or so. Gil Brandt had a kicking caravan for the Dallas Cowboys, and they found, so they uh, they expanded the uh, the search, or places where they searched, and it didn't take me, Rich, but it took me three or four years before I realized that, huh, I have a gift here because when you play soccer, you never have a competition as to who can kick the soccer ball the furthest. That's not part of soccer. Right. You know, you, you, you head the ball, you hit it with both feet, you hit it with the heel, the knee, the chest, the toe. So, so I didn't really realize I thought to myself, huh, I knew I was a pretty good soccer player. I used to take the, the, the free kick and the penalty kick or whatever. Uh, but it took me three or four years. And I thought, you know, I didn't realize this, but I have a gift. They're going to have a hard time finding somebody that can kick the ball as far as I could. And I couldn't for many years. As a matter of fact, my first two years in the old stadium in Kansas City, that in, they kicked from the 40-yard line. And it was only three yards behind the end line to the, to the end zone wall. It was 73 yards to the wall. And George Toma, the, the famous groundskeeper in Kansas City, he put X's on that ball and my kickoffs would hit. And I remember that early years in in kicking in that stadium, I was the only one that could really hit that wall on the on the kickoffs. Hmm. So yeah, I, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I just started competing, you know, in the pros. I didn't know that that I had that gift. That that's that's lucky. That yeah. I had that. So it, it was a matter of me. You got to be able to compete and handle the situation and 
and be a competitor because the, now all of a sudden they go all over the place and they find out people that are they can they they are they they like you pretty close to you in talent, but you got to you know it's competitive they, they they chart you and 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 they judge you every day in training camp you compete yeah. for the job so so but I didn't realize that I had that gift that I kicked the ball far that was lucky that I had that it's like a guy picking up a rock in the neighborhood and throw the the rock a lot further than the other kids I guess that's that's kind of what it was like for me. Yeah, it was something that I didn't know anything about. Knew anything about? That's fascinating, I, and and that's fascinating. I didn't realize that Stram, who you know obviously is courting you and brings you in as a draft pick and all that, that he's then off in Europe, yeah. trying, you know, bringing in Horst Muehlmann and Bobby Howfield. I had no idea. That's interesting. Well, I didn't. I didn't like it. I'm sure, <laughs> but I also knew. So I also knew from day one in the first day of training camp. Hey, why would they keep it when you're a professional? That medical position you're in. They're going to try to replace you. That is the life of the NFL. It doesn't, in the pro, pro sports, period. It doesn't seem like the people that watch the game, they see a lot of the people that are really good that play for years and years. But why would they keep somebody if they find somebody better? And one, if you play running back or quarterback or guard or whatever, you can be second string when you're kicking. It's only one. So I learned that early on. And why would you? And why wouldn't they try to find somebody better to better the team? That's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah. So, so, so kicking is pressurized not only because you had to make the kick, but you had to keep a job. And if you don't, there wasn't any guaranteed contract in those days. If you didn't have a job, you get cut, and the pay, you you weren't on the payroll anymore. You yeah. Paid per game, you know. And I, I want to ask you about a couple of field goals that you kicked over the years. Um, some big, some probably inconsequential in your mind. In in your second year. You guys make the playoffs, but you get blown out by the Raiders in a tiebreaker game, 41 to six. You kick two field goals. Now, this is back when the goalpost is on the goal line. You kick an eight-yard right. field goal and a 10-yard field goal in that game. Now, the team gets killed, <laughs> but you kick a field goal. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember how short, but I remember, I remember a year later, uh, uh, I also kicked eight yard field goal, but see, the hash marks are out wide. Okay? Right. Now keep in mind the ball was on the one yard line. Yeah. So you kick back you kick back seven yards in those days. So that's why a lot of kicks are blocked too. You later move back further back. Now they go eight yards deep. So the hash marks are ten yards wide. So the ball comes back, you know, where the ball snaps right straight towards you, but now you gotta look at a pretty good angle to the left, you know, where the goal is or whatever. Yeah. But it was pretty tricky to kick those eight-yard goal from the if it was on the hash mark. The hash mark was out wide. Yeah, and you know? and you have to get it up. But fast. I didn't realize. I, yeah, I didn't realize in that game that they were that short. But that's uh, I remember kicking a couple of eight-yard field goals because a couple of years later, uh, it's hard to believe, but I set a record for most consecutive field goals in a row, and it was sixteen, and about. 15 was the 52-yarder in the windy cold day in Kansas City. And the, the one that breaks the record is an eight-yarder for the hash mark again. It was pretty <laughs> tricky. And yeah. I also can remember a couple of years after that, we beat Oakland 16 to 14 on a uh, uh, on a short field goal like that. And of course, that's when the year we go and we play the Dolphins on Christmas Day. And I am having a miserable day. And uh, he goes into, we play on forever for 82 minutes. Uh, 
And the main reason is because I miss field goals. And so people ask me often, uh, what do you remember? Well, I, I kicked, I think, I don't know how many game-winning kicks, over 25 in my career, maybe more. But I missed at least two crucial ones. And that's what you remember. That's what you, uh, I, there's no way I can recount the games where I had kicks, you know, late in the game or last second or overtime or late in the game to win. But you sure remembers when you didn't come through. Yeah. That's just a, it is and it was me anyway. So, yeah, that's the nature so, of it. So I remember, I remember, well, you are expected to, you know, it's interesting though. You're expected to come through. I don't know if the pressure has anything to do with that, but, uh, you, you like to think that when you're good, you can come through all the time. It's interesting. I, I remember reading an article about, you know, Jack Nicholas, for example, won 18 majors. He comes in second, I believe, uh, 19 times. Yep. Uh, Kathy Whitworth, the greatest women golfer ever, she won over 80 tournaments, but she finished second over 90 times. <laughs> yeah. so sometimes you wonder, you know, uh, it doesn't, uh, even if they are great, the, 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 the two names I just mentioned are just, you know, remarkably remarkable winners. But you don't win all the time, I guess. You like to think you can. Yeah, you know? exactly. Well, and the big one that you won was the, the 69 season Super Bowl against Minnesota. And you guys go in and you kick three field goals to, to get the game going. You guys are up nine nothing. The first one you kick is 48 yards. And I know Stram said something like, you know, that was the dagger that, you know, kind of put them on notice or something like that. What, what was well, the- I, I think, but I remember most because the field was terrible. They had a, it rained all night and it was tornado warnings about temperature, about the mid forties. And it's hard to believe, but the Super Bowl, that tarp had been laid down, a lot of holes in them. So <laughs> on that game, I had mud cleats on my left heel. I had cleats over an inch and a half long. Because and I, and every kick, uh, kick came from that stuff. But anyway, the opening kickoff, I think talking to some of the Vikings, I heard them talk afterwards. I kicked the opening kickoff, you know, well out of the end zone so they have, they can run it back. Then they have a chance to kick about close to 50 yards, but they chose to punt. Then we get one from 48 or close to 50 yards, and, and we make it pretty easy. And then the next kickoff is also through the end zone again. So... And of course, in those days, if you miss a field goal from long distance, so you'll go ball come back to the to the twenty. So I know that Carl Eller was quoted many times afterwards that that we knew with the kicker they had because they hadn't seen anybody kick the ball quite as far, I guess, in that league. That they knew that if they crossed, we got to the fifty yard line, the corporate the goalposts were on the goal line. And if you you know you try field goals from fifty five six yards because if you miss the ball, go to the twenty. They knew that if they got to the fifty yard line, that we could score. Right, and I think that was, right. and also the kickoffs combined with the fairly long kick. I think the kickoffs maybe even uh, was more uh, an image or something that I remember more than even the field goals, the early one, because mm. my next two out of the field goals are fairly short. There was thirty-two and twenty-five, something like that. So we let we let nine nothing uh, at half. Uh, no, let's see now. Yeah, sixteen nothing. No, we, yeah, sixteen. But yeah. Because I remember it was nine nothing, and then we had third and five, and I thought, "Gosh, I hope we can score." Because twelve nothing is not a safe lead, but if you get to sixteen, and sure enough, that's when that sixty-five toss power trap was called, which which our team hadn't practiced in weeks, and that's when 
Mike popped right through Mike Garrett. They were sixteen nothing. You know, yeah. and then we felt better. But even so, the halftime in those days had no limit to how long it was. They had, you know, the halftime show lasted seemed like forever. And we had the momentum going in, and of course, then the Vikings come back and they're favored heavily. And Dave Osborne had marched down the field and score. And now he's 16 7, and they're strong. But then shortly thereafter, short pass to Otis, he breaks the tackle and runs 46 yards for a score, and, and, and we're, we're off and, and winning. I think that was the first time a coach had ever been mic'd up before a game. And man, did they <clears throat> the right coach because he was hysterical talking about the Mike Garrett touchdown and then talking about the Otis Taylor, you know, it's right there, Lenny, it's right there, Lenny. So matriculate the ball. Up yeah. There. Well, he, he was <clears throat> yeah, Hank, well, in that particular game, from what I've been told anyway, uh, Ed Sable, Steve Sable's dad, is, is that star NFL film. They're at Bud Grant first, but Bud didn't want to do it. He didn't sure. want to be mic'd. And of course, Bud didn't say much anyway. I, I had the pleasure of him coaching in my last year, 85 up in Minnesota. And what a, what a phenomenal coach and man he was too. So, But anyway, uh, but Hank was, but in that game, in those days, as you well know, you know, the quarterbacks met with the coach. And of course the coaches, and Hank was an offensive guy, obviously. And he had a good game playing. And, but the, the, the quarterbacks, you know, that they called almost all the plays. Right. You know. And also, that's true in this game, too. But it turned out that, that it looked like Hank had called every, almost every play. But he, there's no question that that 65 toss proper trap. He pulled that one out of the hat. There's no question about the hat. You know, and, and somebody, somebody ended around to Frank Pitts. So, so he was, uh, uh, so, so that was, that's, that's, but most of the other plays, of course, was, was called by Lenny. Of course, you've had a lot of experience, too. Uh, but Hank was, a, was an offensive genius. And, uh, but it was fun to watch him in that game. I don't think it was too fun to watch if you're on the, on the other side, because remember we opened up the next year against the Minnesota Vikings up in the, up in Minnesota. And remember when Hank gets from the locker room and out to the buses after the game, uh, the, there's a big lot of people that waited for him to come out because they beat us in that game. I think it was 24-7 or 24-10 maybe, and they uh, they weren't too kind to him. <laughs> but he walked from the well, because they didn't, that you know, they took the way it turned out. Of course, nobody knew that they, that thing was going to be showed over and over and over again, even like that. That's just the way it turned out, you know. Right. So, yeah. Anyway, and, it was it and, was fun for us, but not not fun for them. That game, obviously. Oh sure. Oh yeah. And then and you guys keep winning, and there's the playoff loss to the Dolphins that you mentioned. Um, you guys keep winning, but but you know, kind of the ten and the eleven and threes and the twelve and twos start to become kind of eight and six, seven, five and two, and then you have one losing season, seventy four. Uh, you guys go five and nine. A, a lot of those star Hall of Fame type players for your team are starting to get you know are starting to age out, basically starting to retire. Um, right. He, he has his first losing season since like nineteen sixty three, and he gets fired. After the season, what was that like in the locker yeah. room? You know, here's a guy who you've well, won championships with, and all of a sudden he's like, uh, yeah. "Well, he wasn't fired right away. It was several days, right uh, afterwards." And I was up in Montana, I remember. But yeah, he was a you know, he won three AFL championships, winning his coach in the AFL before the between sixty and and seventy and later, and and a, and a great coach and. Uh, you know how that happened. I, I, I was it was shocking to most of us. 
Now, mm-hmm. it's true that uh, I think if Hank would look back, he would think that, you know, he didn't have, uh, if he had spent more, uh, if the team had spent more time on probably scouting and, 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 and because we, in those days, no free agency. If if the coach and the team felt you were good enough, you kept just spot. You had no, you couldn't go to another team, right? You know, so we a lot of people grew old, uh, and that was disappointing to me that Hank was fired. Uh, he gave me the opportunity. Uh, he he encouraged me if things weren't going good, and and I uh, he did a lot for me. He be, he made me believe I was pretty good, and that was that was disappointing to me. But that's. You know, that's a life in in pro sports. But sure. That was disappointing. Yeah, and so and it wasn't based on the, based on his record. Uh, it was difficult to believe. You know? Right, so. right. Um, and so so he's gone. They bring in Paul Wigan. The team continues to struggle for a couple of years under Paul. Um, and you're you know you're still putting up good numbers. You're scoring you know kind of close to 100 points a year and all that. And then they bring in Marv Levy. And it's kind of very interesting because by now the defense, the defense is not good. And um, he decides we're basically going to run a wing T offense, which is like from the forties. Yeah. We're going to run a wing yeah. T, run it 60 times a game. Uh, all of this just to eat clock and keep the defense off the field must've been kind of surreal after having had, you know, Lenny Dawson as your quarterback for a decade. Um, what was it like well, having Levy come in, who obviously became a Hall of Fame? Well, back, back to Paul for a second, too, because Paul was a he was a good man. I mean, we were probably uh, we didn't have the guys had gotten old. We didn't have the we wasn't talented anymore. Right, and we played hard. People try hard for Paul, but we did. We just we weren't matched up well against some of the people that we lost to that year. Then, then of course Marv comes in, and of course. One thing that bothered me is so Marv uh, wanted to change my kicking style. He was all about hang time. Now, when I got into the league, uh, we didn't even time punts kind of a kickoff. You right. can tell by how high it goes, and you can tell by how high the kickoff is. It was more natural for me to kick the ball into the end zone, uh, maybe a little bit lower, but there was no run back. And, so one time in training camp, he said, "When you kick higher, as a coach, if I kick the ball five yards deep in the end zone, even if I run it out, and if you want to kick it to the five, it takes well over a second to get from five yards deep to the five-yard line, and it's not like a punt. They have a running start anyway. You're going to have a running start for the five-yard line. And right. He said, I want you to kick high. So, and also what happened, he brought Marv, uh, Dick Lowry into camp, who was a good kicker. I think we had a pretty goddarn a good competition. I knew that he was very close to me in kicking as we competed, and I was 15 years older. So I was not shocked when it happened, but I felt that I could still kick. But the the the, the thing is, the strange thing, I was not picked up for. Uh, actually, I did go to to uh, Tampa the next day or so, next week, because uh, John McKay was the coach, and Hank and him were good friends. And there were a couple of other kickers in camp the day I was in. I was clearly to kick better, but they didn't sign me. So now it wasn't until four games to go in 1980. I, was, I thought my career was over. Right. Uh, nothing had happened in 12 games. I went to the stadium and kicked some just in case something happened. And and I think one reason was that I saw that my kid, I was late 30s, 38, 39 years old. 
they probably thought I couldn't kick off or my, lost my, my leg strength or my distance because my kickoffs, they used to go in the end zone, deep in the end zone. The last year, so I landed on the five-yard line. But that was by design. Right. So then they probably thought I was over the hill, I guess. So with four, four seasons ago, Bart Starr, a wonderful, wonderful man in Green Bay, um, he gets hold of me and he says, I need help. Can you still kick? And he said he had heard he had talked to Jim Shaw, who was a GM of Kansas City, and he had seen me on the field of Arrowhead kicking certain days. And I said, yeah, I can. So I went up to Green Bay and uh, hadn't kicked for several weeks then, but got through the season okay. And on, on the bus ride back, or the, or the plane ride back from the last game, I'm going to play four games. He says, I've come back in the, in the plane. He says, I want you to come back to training camp. And I said, Coach, that's very nice, but it's, I, I, if I had to come back just as insurance, you know, last year in Kansas City, I felt I competed well against the, the young men they kept. And uh, if I if I come back just to be insurance in case some young people bring in <clears throat> don't pan out, uh, I don't know if I can do that. But he said, I need to win. He said, I can promise you this. If you're the best kicker in camp, you got the job. And I believed him. And sure enough, that year, too, they had still five, six kickers in camp. But I, it, I did get the job. And uh, of course, that year, I think I kicked over 90%, which was not I'd done before. Yeah, yeah 92% field goals. Yeah, but that had because, because um, you know, the kicks weren't being blocked quite as much. And anyway, but main reason, we started right before that, uh, the quarterback was always my holder in Kansas City, Lenny. and the center was the snapper for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no warm-up bets on the sideline, and you, you didn't practice with the center and the holder. We, we only kicked in after training camp. We even maybe kicked five minutes at the most on Friday afternoon after practice with the center and the holder. Right. So now we get up to Green Bay. We start now. I start having the punter being my holder. So now at the end of practice, at least time three times a week, maybe not even the center that would snap in the game, but at least the center would come down. And so I would practice at least 20 field goals with a center and a holder three or four times a week. Mm. And so that, that, that's the main reason that you start making a hell of a lot more kicks. And you also move back half a yard. You kick from seven and a half. So, you, so the tip kicks of a block clear the line of scrimmage. It goes, now they go eight, then... And you do have a snapper that's only that, and, and the fields are good. So there's a lot of reasons why the percentages have gone up tremendously. But even so, the young kids today, they are really good. They are really good. But they also do kick the ball that is uh, very well suited for kicking. But yeah. overall, in, in Green Bay, I think I, I made over 80% in the bad conditions up there. And we had a bad infield in Milwaukee, I remember. And but even so, I in Kansas City, I probably kicked uh, about 65 percent. Although I kicked in the mid 70s, uh, third, fourth, fifth year, but the league average was in the low 50s. And the main reason being 52, 53 percent because you didn't practice as much, you just did not practice nearly as much. And the field conditions weren't really good, and the and the snap of the hole probably weren't as polished as they became later. And so that's what it was. But but nowadays, in Green Bay, I was well over 80. But now, kicking 82 or 3% is not good enough anymore. Right. But 
with with the, the time they spend on it and the fields and the and the and the you know and the, and the, and, the, and the, yeah the fields and the snaps and the thing uh, that's one reason but overall too the whole, these kids these young men are good they are really good oh I'm sure uh, you know and, and looking back at your years in Green Bay. I, the the one shocking thing is that in 81, that year where you're 92% field goal and, and like 98% extra point, you didn't make the Pro Bowl, even though you, you know, you had a stellar season. And Rafael Septi, I looked it up, Rafael Septien did make it, and he his was 77%. And I'm thinking to myself, how, how does well <laughs> I I didn't I, I do know that the best year I ever had. I didn't make the Pro Bowl. I didn't know that, but I don't know. You know, the it, it's funny. Uh they they didn't have special teams coaches so much. Uh, maybe they went by people that led the league in scoring without even looking at the, you know, looking at the stats correctly. Yeah. He did I have more know. points. I, I wouldn't say that, but that he was also yeah. playing for yeah. Dallas in yeah. 1981. So. And it was it was like you know, and also uh, I don't know, but you're right. I did. I think you were the only one besides me that know that that I wasn't. <laughs> The, the first one to kick over ninety percent in bad conditions. <laughs> yeah, I didn't make trouble, but that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's fine. I and didn't know. Mark, boy, you done your work. I tell you that. <laughs> it's fun. It's easy to do. Um, so you have a, you have a great run. Those those kind of three and a half years up in Green Bay. After the '83 season, Star is let go. The te- the team was eight and eight that year. It was kind of like a five hundred year you know each of the three full years you were there um yeah. and stars let go were you let go or you were traded to minnesota ultimately right well what what happened was bart we had uh, we kicked a lot of field goals that year too i think that that season which i didn't say this but i i think i made five kicks to win games and we we're only eight and eight you know yeah you guys had a good um, time wins yeah and I remember one game down in, in New Orleans, on, no, in Tampa Bay, we've been 12-9 in overtime. I kicked four field goals. It has been one of the most boring games ever. And the reason we, we, we've won 12-9 because uh, when, when, when John McKay had signed a, a chance of signing me years earlier, uh, he signed somebody else, and then there was a guy called Bill Capiz who kicked for them. But he had missed an extra point, so they led 9-6. Uh, no, they led 9-6 late the game, and since he had missed an extra point, I kicked my third field goal, tied the game 9-9, and then they got into overtime, and I kicked one more, they went 12-9. Remember, after the game, uh, somebody told me the story anyway, that uh, they asked John McKay, I said, what do you think of oh, Capiz? Capiz missed an extra point, what do you think about Capiz? And John McKay, in typical John McKay fashion, said, Capiz is kaput. <laughs> that's what the story that I don't know if that's true or not. And it sounds like John McKay though. Yeah, some John McKay. So but anyway, so we, we Bar Star is fired and you you don't fire a Bar Star. I mean Bar Star was a good coach. So we, if you look closely at the games games in eighty three, we had a tremendous offense. But we couldn't stop anybody. I think we scored over forty points and eighty forty points. Didn't we beat the Redskins forty eight to forty Seven or something. And it's the best Monday night football game I ever saw. I'll never forget it. Yeah. yeah. One, and there were other, other games. They win and score a heck of a lot of points. So if Bart, I'm, all of us knew if we could get a couple of people healthy and get a, some help on defense, we could have a heck of a team. But yeah. he has been let go. 
And and the higher forest, Greg, and forest calls me, talks me, says, you know, you are over 40 now. I got a kid that I kept on the on the uh, injured score last year, Eddie Garcia, nice young man, pretty good kicker. I'm thinking about maybe that's uh, not keeping you. And then he said, well, I got cold feet. He says, I, I think I'll keep you. And I said, coach, you've got to make up your mind. I'm not going to go to camp just for insurance. So, so a few days later, I'm traded to Minnesota. Mm. Uh, and but I think to myself, well, I, Green Bay was a phenomenal experience. What a place to play on the be on the football team. I was lucky. Kansas City, we had phenomenal fans. When I got to Kansas City, like we talked about earlier, the Chiefs had been in Super Bowl one, and the town was a town. Town was on fire. They loved the Chiefs. I was, we got there just at the right time. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, then we played in Green Bay. Uh, if you played in the league, I tell people: if you played in the league for a long time, but you haven't played in Green Bay, you missed out. You, you don't you can't even begin to understand how important football is out there. Right. You know. So I missed that. But then I also thought: hell, I'm going indoor. I'm going to the Metrodome. <laughs> that'd be easy. That that compared to Lambeau Field or Milwaukee County Stadium. So I go to uh, I make the team in uh, Les Eckel trades for me. And I make it, and I make the Pro Bowl. I'm 42 years old. That's all because I'm indoor. I mean, it's a lot easier. So then I think, gosh, I'm going to be good. But then before training camp, but in, during training camp, my 19th year, I, my back is really bothering me a lot. And I know, oh, boy, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it through. I just kind of limped in my last year, and I was done. But an interesting thing, uh, so, you know, Bud Grant came back. And he yep. was just, I, I just, I'm very impressed with, with him. Of course, he played pro basketball. He played pro, uh, he, I miss a phenomenal, he played for the Lakers. Yep. He played up in Canada. He coached. He was, I mean, he, he is such a, uh, uh, an icon and such a hero up in, up in Minnesota. And I can understand why. And so, but I also had a sense of humor too. So a week to go, I'm said I'm going to go out into Bud Grant. I said, Bud, uh, I'm going to tell him that my back is bothering me, and I think it might be time to retire. And I think that he is going to say, Well, yeah, I know you haven't had your normal year, but why don't you think about it a few months? We got several months before the next year. So when I walk in and tell him my back is hurt, I'm not doing well, kind of not doing well here. So maybe it's time to retire. So he said right away, I think you're right. <laughs> Instead of saying, why, "Why don't you think about it a few months?" He said, "I think you're right." Let me call. Let me call Merrill Swanson. He was the marketing guy. So they called Merrill Swanson on the phone. You know, in the office next door, next door. Hey, he said, "Merrill, Stender is going to retire. This is the last game coming up. Why don't you call Channel Five or Channel Eleven or whatever in the newspaper and get a news conference, press conference on Wednesday announcing my retirement?" <laughs> <laughs> but it was, but I, but I knew I was absolutely that I could not, and I ended up with back surgery shortly after that. And he was right, but but still, it, it was it was it was uh, it was typical, but because he was so factual, he knew too. It was time. I was done, and he, I guess, he knew more about the back than I did. The back injuries don't heal all that well, and uh, but anyway, that that uh, that year though he was a coach, we became. I enjoyed him. It was always so nice to me. And also, years later, I've been around him some, and uh, uh, he, he's just a wonderful, wonderful man. 
but I was done. I appreciate the, the chance to be up there for two years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, w- when you look back at, at the career, what an amazing, I mean, obviously a, an amazing hall of fame career, Super Bowl championship, all that stuff. So, you know, it, that all speaks for itself. Um, but you look back at the coaches that you, you played, you know, Jim Sweeney, like you mentioned, should be in the college hall. He won, I, I added it up, 11 conference titles between the Big Sky, the Big West, and the WAC through his career. Hank Stram, Hall of Fame. Marv Levy, you know, you only overlap for a year or two, but Hall of Fame. Uh, Bart Starr obviously was Hall of Fame player, not coach, but nevertheless, you played for a Hall of Famer there. Yeah. And, then, and then obviously yeah. Bud Grant. I mean, what what an amazing kind of mix of of coaches and experiences. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Sweeney first. If Sweeney had, if he were even in talent, Sweeney's teams would win. I mean, he right. was a, sensational. And you know, all the coaches don't have a great. But Marv, you know, I, I struggled with since he cut me for a while there. But then I, it worked out. And he knew that I didn't like. Of course, I would. Nobody, nobody likes to be cut. But uh, we became. Good friends later. I would work for a firm in Kansas City that designs stadiums and arena, HNPB Corporation. I would go to NFL meetings, and and about after two or three years, I went over and shook his hand. I said, and then we both ended up in the Hall of Fame. So we got along well, you know, for a long, long time now. So yeah, cool. uh, for him to get to get teams back to the Super Bowl four times, that you got to be a heck of a coach because to get the team after the most devastating loss and go through all that stuff and get it back to the, to the game again, time after time, after time, that, that is, uh, that, that is, that is almost hard, hard to believe that he, and he was, he was the guy that made that happen more than anybody else. That's yeah. actually remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and, and I guess two other things I, I want to, I want to wrap by reading a couple of quotes from Hank Stram, who was your um, uh, your inductor at, at the Hall of Fame. That I think just you know kind of encapsulate your career so well. But but before I do that, I want to ask you something. I know we talked that you're in '84 in Minnesota, which was a tough year. That was the one year of Les Steckel between the Bud Grant years. You're up there, obviously a veteran. They have brought in Archie Manning to be quarterback. Well, we, we, were, we were roommates, we were training camp, on, on, yeah, on road games. You know, we travel, okay. that's obvious. I, I know what I do now, if they, if, if my whole career, we always had two people to a room or whatever. So we were we were roommates in training camp. That lasted probably, you know, several weeks in those days. And then on the road. And uh, he was just, he was just great. I mean, he was a wonderful man. And and, uh, and then, of course, to watch what had happened, you know, Peyton, and and Cooper were born well, they were seven eight years old at that time I think mm-hmm. and of course Matt or Don Hasselback his two sons were running around on the practice field on the on the, he was with the Vikings his last year that's right he was like uh, a backup tight end right yeah no Hasselback yeah but he was a he, he was a starting tight end for the Patriots for a long right. time right and he was a good tight end and here they got. You got four kids running on the practice field on Saturday when you, they could do that, come out and watch practice, and four of them are quarterbacks in the uh, uh, in the NFL later. It's just remarkable. Eli was just born about that time, right. but, but the Manning family—that's remarkable. But Archie, Archie was a good guy. I remember he got into a couple of games, one exhibition game against St. Louis, and he just looked great. He had that—he could run. Archie had some moves when he could run. He could run with the ball too, and. Of course, he, uh, you know, he 
he was he was hell. Let's face it. He, I think he was the highest paid player in the league there in the early eighties. Archie mm. was a tremendous football player. He didn't have all the talent around him for most of his career, but he was a wonderful man. And uh, uh, yeah, no, Archie. And then also in that one year in '84, I think it was, he had to play against the Chicago Bears. Uh, they had the best defense in maybe in history of football. And I remember Archie looked like it. Uh, and I've been the boxing match where like a, a boxing boxer would look like after a loss, he he really took a beating. But boy, he he, he earned the respect of everybody. I tell you that. He, oh yeah. And he's a, he's just a, and he the way he has handled himself, watched him over the years for a long, long time. Is he is a dignified, classy guy, Archie yeah. Manning is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I have to say it's been it's been an honor, you know, kind of having you on and, and talking about the you know improbable <laughs> career that you had starting in Norway and then in Montana as a ski jumper, et cetera, um, you know, culminating in the Hall of Fame with the Chiefs uh, and the Packers and the Vikings. Well, I, 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 a lot of a lot of a lot of people helping me along the way, but it's uh, yeah, no, it is it is uh, it wasn't scripted that way. Let's put it that way, but it's, that's the way it turned out. Thank goodness. Yeah, very fortunate. Two two great quotes from from uh, Hank Stram when talking about you. First one, he said, "Look, this guy is the total Hall of Fame package. He's productive, he's consistent, and he's enduring. That's a Hall of Fame football player." And then he also said, uh, in the induction speech for you, he said, "I looked up the word impact, and it said it's an instantaneous stroke communicated through a body in motion." And he said, "If if anything describes Jan Stenrud, it is that impact." So I thought that was uh, I thought that was pretty cool uh, the way Hank described you and your career uh, with him and the Chiefs. Well, it's almost it's uh, emotionally to, to to listen to. Uh, I remember him saying that uh, Hank was. I told you earlier he was so he just if I had a rough time for a while, whatever he said, no, you know you're my guy, you're the best or whatever. He he encouraged me and. Uh, no, he was so important to my career. I I, I enjoyed. It. He was uh, very grateful and, and, and thankful that that he was the one that gave me the, you know, the the chance in the pro football and 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 if things didn't go well, he was in my corner all the time. He, yeah, he was great to me. He was great to me. That was the kind words. It was nice of you to read that again. It's it's nice. It was nice. And I remember at the time too that. Um, yeah, it was emotional for me to hear him say those wonderful things. I'm sure. Well, you earned it. Um, well, Jan Stenrud, I, I can't tell you I, how appreciative I am for you coming on Chasing Hardware. Really appreciate your time. Uh, been a lot of fun walking through your career with you. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. That you had you had done your homework. It was amazing what some of the things that you asked me and the things you knew about me. That. Uh, those you're a real pro. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it myself. That's great. Well, thank you very much. Take care, Jan. You bet. Thank you. You too. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Tonight, it feels like life. Come on. Life is like Life is like what it is. Life is like.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.